Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In 1891, Paul Gauguin, one of the greatest French Impressionist or post-Impressionist painters, left his wife and children in Copenhagen, Denmark, and never returned. Born in 1848 in Paris, at the time of the Parisian Revolution, he was in his 40s when he made the jump. Not only did he escape his wife and children, he also escaped European civilization when he permanently settled in Tahiti, French Polynesia, where he produced some of his greatest paintings. In 1897, while in Tahiti, he learned that his favorite daughter was dead. His own health had deteriorated immensely. The house he was living in was about to be lost to the bank. At the height of his despair, he painted one of the most iconic paintings of all time. Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? This iconic painting fits in with our topic today. Today I'll discuss one of the most beautiful English novels of all time. The Moon in Sixpence by Somerset Moham, published in 1919, tells the story of an antisocial artist who, just like Paul Gauguin, propelled by immense artistic creativity, escapes it all, abandoning his job, wife and children to become one of the greatest artists of all time. Unlike Robinson Crusoe, who accidentally left civilization, our hero in this novel is intentional about it. He feels stifled by the tedium of modern life, so runs away in search of artistic freedom and mental clarity. Something we all want but cannot have. Before I tell you the story and discuss its themes, let me tell you who the author was. William Somerset Moham was born in 1874 in Paris. Aged 10, he moved to England to study at King's School in Canterbury. Later, he went to Heidelberg University in Germany and studied medicine to become a doctor. But it turned out he had talent in writing. His writing success meant he didn't have to become a doctor. It's a lot easier sitting behind a desk daydreaming than being in a hospital full of sick people screaming and blood everywhere. Okay, that's a bit dramatic. But no doubt, writing is far easier than being a doctor. I think it was the right choice. A doctor cures your physical illness and a great novelist cures your soul. Moen became a celebrity in his early 30s after the success of his play Lady Frederick in 1907. He took the London play scene by storm as all the major theatres were queuing up to stage his plays. His storytelling success meant he had money so he travelled a lot, then settled in the sunny side of France. Actually, his travelling had another purpose. It turns out he was a spy working for the British government. Not sure how good a spy he was, but no doubt he was a genius when it came to writing. Moham was 44 when he wrote The Moon in Sixpence. Some call it a midlife crisis. Moham turned that into a novel. A lot of great literary works were written when the authors were in or close to their 40s. Moham died in 1965 in France, aged 91. Summary. The title of The Moon and Sixpence refers to the artistic-minded person or superfluous man in Russian literature, someone whose head touches the moon while his body is beaten down in search of pennies on the ground. We dream and dream on the inside, but on the outside we scrape a living by collecting pennies from our jobs. 
It's a very short novel narrated by a young writer from London who tells the story of a misanthropic artist, Charles Strickland, who just like Paul Gauguin works as a stockbroker in London and just like Gauguin lives a comfortable life with his wife and children. His wife is a kind of socialite who loves to have people over at her house and talk about literature and art. Charles, however, shows little interest in other people. He is quiet and always finds it difficult to articulate himself in words. He knows he's an outsider, so he has chosen not to say much because he doesn't want to rock the boats. Quote, Man's desire for the approval of his fellows is so strong, his dread for their censure so violent, that himself has brought this enemy within his gates, and it keeps watch over him, vigilant always in the interests of its master to crush any half-formed desire to break away from the herd. It will force him to place the good of society before his own. It is the very strong link that attaches the individual to the whole. Since language is not his best suit, is he hiding something? You bet. Most quiet and aloof people are quiet for a reason. This is a paradox of life. Bubbly people have not much to say, but they talk anyway, while quiet people on the other hand have plenty to say, but they don't have the words or the will to say. Our hero Charles Strickland endures this stifled existence for years. But then at some point he decides he has had enough. One day he wakes up in the morning and packs his bag and leaves. Not only is he deserting his luxurious life in London, he's abandoning his wife and children. But why face poverty and homelessness himself and make his family destitute and penniless who might not even survive? What could possibly be the reason for this madness? Our antisocial hero is an artist on the inside or some wild creature of the wood. He's a man possessed. Quote, he's no longer an individual but a thing, an instrument to some purpose foreign to his ego. What is his demon? It is art. He is an artist whose desire to create is so immense that nothing else in the world matters to him. He just wants to make art. That's the sole purpose in his life. That's it. Charles Strickland's wife panics and asks our narrator to go and find her husband. Where has he gone? Well, it doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to know his destination. Paris is of course an obvious place where all the 19th and early 20th century aspiring artists ended up. Picasso, Van Gogh, James Joyce and more all ended up there. Artists are good at escaping but not good at hiding. The narrator tracks him down in Paris. He lives in a very poor hotel and works as a painter. But you know what? Despite his terrible living condition, the man is at home. He's incredibly happy. Luxury or no luxury, the man is free. He's free from his family, friends and job. That's why mad people head towards a mountain to escape the heaviness of society. He was like in a prison in London. He was drowning. Quote, when a man falls into the water, it doesn't matter how he swims, well or badly. He's got to get out or else he will drown. While in Paris, his personality changes completely, almost unrecognizable. He was a submissive, docile family man in London, but in Paris he is turned into a savage animal. He's careless and often nasty towards others. He doesn't care about other people. Why? Because he's driven by an unexplainable desire to create art. So nothing on the outside matters to him. His life in Paris is miserable, yet he's happy and determined to paint. It doesn't matter where he lives, in the gutter or in some five-star hotel, as long as he can fulfill his artistic goal, he is content. His paintings are however ridiculed by people and nobody takes him seriously except one successful Dutch artist, Dirk Struve. Vincent van Gogh was close friend of Paul Gauguin. They had a love-hate relationship. 
Here too, it is the same story. Dirk is Charles' savior when he becomes seriously ill. He takes him to his house and looks after him. At first, his wife, Blanche, says that she doesn't like Strickland since he is rude and antisocial. But Dirk sees a genius inside Charles, so he does everything to help the artist shine. But here's the biggest irony in all. It soon becomes clear that the wife is in fact infatuated with a homeless artist. We know what happens next. The wife sleeps with him, but the worst is yet to come for the host. Dirk, the kind gentleman who rescued our hero artist, gets kicked out of his own house. The homeless artist has taken his wife now. Oops. As Nietzsche said, genius artists do not follow social conventions. Society shuns on people stealing other people's partners. But this never even occurs to our hero here. Not only that, after breaking up the couple apart, he starts ignoring Blanche. She was too naive, thinking she could turn a beast into a man. She thought she could tame him. Quote, when a woman loves you, she is not satisfied until she possesses your soul. Because she is weak, she has a rage for domination, and nothing less will satisfy her. She has a small mind, and she resents the abstract which she is unable to grasp. She is occupied with the material things, and she is jealous of the deal. The soul of man wanders through the uttermost regions of the universe and she seeks to imprison it in the circle of her. Do you remember my wife? I saw Blanche little by little trying all her tricks. With infinite patience she prepared to snare me and bind me. She wanted to bring me down to her level. She cared nothing for me, she only wanted me to be hers. She was willing to do everything in the world for me except one thing. I wanted to leave me alone. But unfortunately, this is not a Disney fairy tale, it's real life. Charles is untamable, he's free artistic beast. Blanche is heartbroken when he completely ignores her. Soon after, she dies. So our artist hero first abandoned his own wife and children in London, then when he gets helped by a stranger in Paris, he sleeps with his wife to break up the couple apart, and then leaves the wife in the cold, which leads her to end her own life. He cares not for a soul. No family, friends or society is as important as his art. In fact, he is so possessed that his deeds or misbehavior doesn't even register in his mind. He has no excuse and it doesn't even try to justify his behavior. Since he is so preoccupied with his artistic creativity that he cannot understand the pain his actions cause. Quote, I don't think of the past. The only thing that matters is the everlasting present. Just like a Zen Buddhist, he is in the moment. Charles Strickland exhausts every means of making a living in Paris. Here's a crazy thing about it. He refuses to sell any of his paintings, determined to keep them unknown because he doesn't want to be famous. After a while, Charles finds Paris also stifling. It's too close to London, it's the center of European civilization. He wants more freedom, he wants to be in the wild because true artists are like wild beasts. He leaves Paris and goes to Marseille. There the narrative is second hand, so things aren't as clear as it was in Paris and London. Anyhow, after some time over there, he finds himself in hot water with after a fight with another man who threatens revenge once he returns from hospital. Charles has to escape. Escape he does. He leaves France for the remote island of Tahiti where the story continues second hand. Told by three people, a hotel owner who finds Strickland a wife, friend who played chess with him and finally a doctor who cared for him 
much to Strickland's opposition, and he was witness to his death and burial. They all confessed to their failure in spotting the genius. The honesty of simple people is almost artistic and beautiful and represented a similar, if not on the same level, as Strickland's genius. Tahiti seems almost a magical place, distant from the hardship and realities of life in Paris. In Tahiti, he finds the local women a lot easier to deal with than European women. Quote, as lovers, the difference between men and women is that women can love all day long, but men only at times. The Tahitian women don't ask questions. They don't try to tame him. They don't try to play games with him. They let him be. They let him paint. He paints like crazy. His artistic juice is flowing like fireworks. But living in Tahiti has its own problems. It's true that civilization or modernity has provided us with security but has taken our freedom. In Tahiti, he has his freedom but it comes at a cost. Soon he develops leprosy which leaves him blind. Now surely he can't paint anymore. You're wrong. He continues to paint like crazy. He paints some of his masterpieces while blind. So first it was London and his family who stifled him. He moved to Paris for some freedom, but Paris was just another prison. He moved to Tahiti outside the European civilization. But even in Tahiti, he was inside a prison. His own two eyes. You're only free when you cannot see anything. Now he's free from everything and everyone. When he dies, he leaves behind some amazing paintings, but the man is even destructive after his death. His dying wish to his wife was to burn his painting. She fulfills his wishes. Despite that, he leaves some great paintings behind. There, our artist hero's story ends. Our artist genius is no more. But he made a wave, a big one. Paul Gauguin was one of the most brilliant artists of the 19th century. He died in 1903 in French Polynesia. Analysis. The question is, do you have to escape modernity to be a genuine artist? Nietzsche says yes, we have become too human and too tame. The social forces are far more potent in taming us today, as we have become more gluttonous, lazy and docile. According to Nietzsche, modernity is based on rationality. What does it mean? It means everything we do in life is rationally calculated. Merits, demerits are weighed against one another. While it makes our lives very safe, less risky, we live longer. But on the negative, it kills our creativity, risk-taking and courage to be spontaneously free. Rationality makes you safe while passion makes you an artist. We are all born artists, but society, through the education system, social norms and conventions, tame us. Here's a quote from Somerset Moham's own memoir titled The Summing Up. The artist can within certain limits make whatever he likes of his life. In other callings, in medicine for instance or the law, you are free to choose whether you will adopt them or not, but having chosen, you are free no longer. You are bound by the rules of your profession. A standard of conduct is imposed on you. The pattern is predetermined. It's only the artist and maybe the criminal who can make his own. There are risks on both sides, being an artist or not being an artist. Everything in life comes with costs and benefits. The stereotype of a hungry artist is rooted in some truth. Also, the stereotype of soulless 9-to-5 is also rooted in some truth. It's a trade-off. It comes down to freedom versus stability. Quote, only the poet or the saint can water an asphalt pavement in the confident anticipation that lilies will reward his labor. A rational man would see nothing but stupidity in that endeavor. 
Moem also plays with a theme of blindness as a liberating force. At the end of his life, the artist lost his sight, but it made his art even more strikingly beautiful. This reminded me of a short story by the American writer Raymond Carver called Cathedral, in which a blind man opens a prejudiced man's eyes through painting a cathedral. I have discussed the short story in my top 20 American novels. But here, blindness means you are not distracted by things on the outside. You look on the inside, the collective subconsciousness, which is the ultimate source of artistic genius. When one door closes, another one opens. It's a cliche, but it's certainly true. You can say that the more you have things in your possession, the less you are yourself. The more tools an artist has, the less creative he becomes. Today, technology has made life easier, yet also has made us totally reliant on it. Without modern comfort, a lot of us cannot do anything. Our smartphones entertain us, but most of the time, bored people or unhappy people create art. Writing Somerset Mohan was a great writer. His language is beautiful, yet very precise and to the point. The paintings and scenes are exquisitely described. Now I'll read a couple of passages from the novel in which Moham describes two paintings by Paul Gauguin. You can see the beauty of how two art forms, literature and visual art, come together. The first one describes Gauguin's painting titled Woman with a Mango, completed in 1891. Quote, Tall and extremely stout, she would have been of imposing presence if the great good nature of her face had not made it impossible for her to express anything but kindliness. Her arms were like legs of mutton, her breasts like giant cabbages, her face broad and fleshy, gave you an impression of an almost indecent nakedness, and vast chin succeeded to vast chin. I do not know how many of them there were. They fell away voluminously into the capaciousness of her bosom. She was dressed usually in a pink Mother Hubbard, and she wore all day long a large straw hat. But when she let down her hair, which she did now and then, for she was vain of it, you saw that it was long and dark and curly, and her eyes had remained young and vivacious. Her laughter was the most catching I ever heard. It would begin a low peal in her throat, and would grow louder and louder till her whole vast body shook. She loved three things, a joke, a glass of wine, and a handsome man. To have known her is a privilege. The second painting is Still Life with Mangoes, completed in 1898, just a few years before Gauguin's death in 1903. Quote, the colors were so strange that words can hardly tell what a troubling emotion they gave. They were somber blues, opaque like a delicately carved ball in lapis lazuli, and yet with a quivering lustre that suggested the palpitation of mysterious life. They were purples, horrible like raw and putrid flesh, and yet with a glowing sensual passion that called up vague memories of the Roman Empire, of Heliogabalus, they were red, shrill like the berries of holy. One thought of Christmas in England, and the snow, and the good cheer, and the pleasure of children. And yet by some magic, soft until they had the swooning tenderness of a dove's breast. There were deep yellows that died with an unnatural passion into green as fragrant as the spring, and as pure as the sparkling water of the mountain brook. Who can tell what anguished fancy made these fruits? They belonged to a Polynesian garden of the Hesperides. There was something strangely alive in them, as though they were created in a strange 
as though they were creating a stage of the Earth's dark history when things were not irrevocably fixed to their forms. They were extravagantly luxurious. They were heavy with tropical odors. They seemed to possess a somber passion of their own. It was enchanted fruit, taste which might open the gateway to God knows what secrets of the soul and to mysterious palaces of the imagination. They were sullen with unweighted dangers, and to eat them might turn a man to beast or god. All that was healthy and natural, all that clung to happy relationships and simple joys of simple men, shrank from them in dismay, and yet a fearful attraction was in them, and like the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil, they were terrible with possibilities of the unknown. The Moon and Sixpence is an incredible story of hardship and immense human desire to create art. The story is also immensely inspiring and uplifting that perhaps one day you could be brave enough to follow your own lofty dreams in pursuit of your artistic ambition. For Strickland, art was an escape because he didn't want to be famous or rich. He used art as a tool of escape. At the end, he gave instructions to burn down the walls on which he had painted. For him, his mission was complete as soon as he dipped his brush in paint and applied it on the surface. That is art. This is an incredible novel. What do you think? Where do you want to escape to? Let me know in the comments. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.